May the grace and peace of Jesus Christ be with you all. I invite you to leave your Bibles, pardon me, open there to Philippians chapter 3 as we'll be looking at it uh, through the first part of the message. And again, this little handout is simply a way to guide uh, your thinking and a bit of an outline to our conversation uh, here tonight regarding the content of this sermon. Not exclusively this, but it's to provide a bit of a framework. This is not an assignment that's going to be collected anytime. Uh, but feel free to jot down notes that you think might be helpful for our continued conversation tonight. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Philippi, made it abundantly clear that they were a people deeply loved of God. And I think it's important here this morning as we begin uh, this look together at who we are, what God has done, what he may want to do, that we pause to consider we are deeply loved by God. You are deeply loved by God. And if that reality doesn't settle deeply in our hearts, it's hard for us to receive an honest assessment of our areas of weakness and need, unless we know we're deeply loved. It's true for you, it's true for me. Paul says repeatedly to churches, they are the joy and crown of the Lord. He would say that to us here today. Those of you who are in Christ, you are the joy of Christ. That doesn't mean we've already attained or already perfect, but it does mean we're deeply loved. Your brother and sister sitting next to you are deeply loved by God. Loved more deeply than you love them. This is our first attempt at what may possibly be an annual practice, and it's we've called it kind of loosely a state of the church address. While this address is mine, and I take full responsibility for what's said here today, we as elders have invested a significant amount of time around this preparation and expect to have each of them have an opportunity tonight as well to give, to give input in our continued discussion as well as in an assessment of what's said here this morning. This address comes in two sections. The first is primarily assessment, and it takes place around two key ideas drawn some specifically, some generally here from this passage in Philippians. And these are two lines that I would like for you to leave here today ringing in your ears. The first one is Jesus is either first or you don't get him at all. Jesus is first or there's no Jesus. 
Jesus won't accept second place. He won't be a second love. He's either the first love of your life or you don't have him at all. Second, when you get Jesus or Jesus gets you, you also get his body, the church. All of it. Okay? Jesus is either first or you don't get him at all. But when you get Jesus or Jesus gets you, you also get his body. All of it. Because there's only one. The second section then is a very basic, simple vision for the focal points of our path forward. It begins at the very center of our lives with worship, flows from there to our work, and from there to the witness that accompanies it. Worship the sphere of the priest, work the sphere of the king, and witness the sphere of the prophet. These are not three offices from which we select one or two. These are offices given to us by our great high priest, by the king of kings, and by the high prophet who spoke of the kingdom of God and then ushered it in through his own death and resurrection. And we, we humble creatures of God, are invited, we're even compelled, compelled to join in the life and mission of this Jesus. And like the first Christian church of Philippi, we too are a mixed group of people from various social and economic groups. We've had a variety of prior church experiences, some good and some painful. And when periods of testing have come, as they always do, our tendency is to quickly evaluate the testing circumstances from the vantage point of our past experiences. Often, and predominantly, the painful experiences of our past. And when the painful parts of our past are touched in present conflicts, we don't fight wisely and well. We often fail to realize how deeply our perspective is my perspective. Unless we have the disciplined courage, the disciplined practice of daily, weekly, continually taking on the mind of Christ through his word. And the Apostle Paul, having a treasured past, said he had to count all those credentials as lost for the sake of Christ. And we too must learn to take that posture. Because Jesus is either first or you don't get him at all. If he slips into second place in any way, shape, or form, you don't have Jesus. The opening lines of the book of Philippians 
call us to joy and rejoice in the Lord. Why do we rejoice? Why should our, and I want to use the definition for joy as a deep abiding sense of well-being. It's not like happiness. It's we're loved, we are cared for. We are kept, as the Psalm 121 says. We are kept and protected and loved. We're guided, we're guarded. And from that comes our sense of joy, our deep sense of well-being and assurance. And it's that Lord that then is our source of joy and our sense of well-being. The Apostle Paul, in the first part of chapter 3 here, in a very personal sort of testimonial, acknowledges that he, he embodied a certain institutional pride that was marked out by a religious zealotry. This guy was zealous, capital Z, zealous. And it gave him the highest credentials as a Jew. And and the Jews were not just any people. They were God's people. They had Abraham and Moses as their fathers. They were a special called out people. And he's marking here in his credentials some of the great gifts of grace that God gave to him. But he said when it comes to Jesus... Those all have to take a lower place. They have to take a lower place. And these are the words he uses to describe his privileged place. If you think you've got reason for confidence in the flesh, look at mine. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Just pretty much the best credentials a man could ever have in the Jewish world. I toyed with writing up Mennonite credentials. Uh, Some of us have them that pretty much match. Born into a godly home, the son of a pastor, uh, taught the Bible from childhood up. All sorts of wonderful gifts of God's grace to us. But if Jesus is not first... There's no Jesus. Paul is writing, then not merely to a group of Jews, he's describing his own journey of encountering the surpassing greatness of Jesus. He writes to a group of Philippians. Who were the Philippians? They were the second most privileged city in the Roman Empire of the day. The city of Philippi was founded, was established for retiring army officers who had served their country. Rome was getting full. And so they established this special place in Macedonia called Philippi, where the army retirees could gather and live their celebrated Roman lives. And I want you to look. He marks out those credentials back further in chapter chapter 3. Look at verses 18 and 19. This was the hallmark of the good life for the Philippians. They walk as enemies of Christ. Their God is their belly. 
They glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. That was the good life for a Philippian retiree. All the food, all the resources, all the lascivious, lustful, sensual living at your very fingertips. The good life. And Paul said to them, Jesus is either first or you don't get him at all. All of these things must be counted as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. The Philippians and Paul, pagans and a religious zealot, both in the highest rankings of their company, as Roman citizens of a significant Roman city, as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Paul says we've got to find a common place. We must meet in this common place in a common pursuit with a common attitude. And it's the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, not as though I've already attained, but I'm pressing after. And if you don't have that mindset, God will still give it to you. There's tremendous hope in those lines. And Jesus today is still either the first place, the first person in your life, or you don't get him at all. And that still shapes how we do life. It shapes how we are Mennonites. Are we Mennonites first? Then there's no Jesus. Jesus is either the first place in your heart or there's no Jesus at all. And in an era of rampant nationalism, there's another parallel that the Philippians would have understood. This also shapes how we are Americans. And if our loyalty is America first, there's no Jesus at all. Because Jesus is either first or there's no Jesus at all. As good as it is to be an American, as blessed as we are to live in this nation with so many opportunities, if our first love is the American dream, the self-centered pleasure and self-directed life of the average typical American, there will be no Jesus for you. There will be no Jesus for me. As good a heritage as we have as Mennonites, the gifts of grace given to us through this legacy of faith, unless we place it under the authority and scrutiny of Jesus, unless we let it be tested and shaped and informed and guided by the scriptures that teach us of this Jesus, there will be no Jesus for us either. In the challenges and struggles of the past two years, one of the overarching themes has been the perceived tension between these two poles. Some, from our perspective, see the tendencies of others in indulging the flesh, a tendency toward lawlessness. Some see the tendencies of others placing confidence in the flesh or legalism, religiosity. I want to remind you, this is nothing new. 
This is nothing new at all. It is the oft-documented struggle in Scripture. There were the Jews and the Greeks. There were the ascetics who denied the pleasures of life, and then there were the gluttons who just took it all in. There was the Pharisee, and there was the publican. There was the older brother and the younger brother. In the same household, there was a Mary and a Martha. In the early church, there were those who ate meat offered to idols, and there were those who said, I will not eat meat offered to idols. There are those who say, it's all about your behaviors. And others who say, it's all about your heart. And these people have always spent time in church together. Always. There's nothing new. God actually intends to use them to help form Christ in each other. To help each of us become more like Christ while being saved and salvaged from the ditch that is most comfortable to us. Because most of us prefer ditches. Somehow we find security in a ditch. Much of this debate and struggle is healthy. And some aspects of it will always occur in church life. But I want to note, it is healthy if, and there's the big word, it's healthy if this debate and struggle begins with an honest self-assessment. And then after removing the log from our own eyes, we, in humility and meekness, serve our brother and sister. That's when it's healthy. However, when there is more focus on the other than on the self, we begin patterns of speech and behavior that quickly turn destructive. And here lies some of our weakness. For some, these matters are a clear matter of right and wrong, of rule and obedience. Certain behaviors become so glaringly offensive, we can't engage in nurturing relationships to truly see and hear what God might actually be doing in the life of the other. And I would also note, our recent conflicts have not been primarily over Scripture. We have not demonstrated a knowledge, a robust knowledge of Scripture in our debates. We have not modeled the devotion to Scripture that's adequate to begin discussing and debating how Scripture might inform or shape our life together. It has exposed our biblical poverty. We who say we love the Bible. I speak for myself, not just for you. Rather, most of the debates have been rooted in divergent expectations, rooted in our varied experiences and perspectives. And we've not done well at discerning the difference. And so when things 
are shaken, as they have been, it quickly exposes where our confidence lies. And I would just ask you to consider, if our confidence is rooted in our historic tradition as Mennonites, how we are accustomed to doing things in our previous church experience, or even in our recent church experience here, when things are shaken, how might that confidence show up? That faulty confidence. If our confidence is rooted in my particular way of reading the Bible, how might that show up when my confidence is shaken? If my confidence is rooted in my particular flavor of theology, how might that be exposed when it's shaken? If my confidence is rooted in leadership and that is shaken, how might that show up? If my confidence is rooted in my denomination, the group of churches I'm a part of, and that relationship is shaken, how might that show up? If my confidence is rooted in my godly family heritage or my clean moral upbringing, and the confidence is shaken, how might that show up? When things are shaken, and we see, we see throughout Scripture, God knows when to shake things, and he doesn't mind shaking things. He quite happily shakes things, because he knows that when we get our confidence resting in something that is not eternal and secure, he'd rather shake it and expose it so that our confidence would return to him. To his son Jesus. To the ability of Jesus to keep his people, to guide his people, and lead his people to flourishing. You see, God knows that if Jesus is not first, there's no Jesus at all. And so when we tend to shift our affections, and our affections have tangled webs leading into other places, God will quite happily shake that to expose it. And it's actually a gift of God's grace to us. We need to reaffirm our deep confidence in Jesus and his ability to build his church, to save his people, to guide us safely through turmoil when it engulfs us. We have been given some great gifts as a congregation. Scripture has mattered here. It mattered to George Brunk, our founding pastor. It mattered to Paul Emerson, who served here for many years. The commitment to scripture that was modeled in this pulpit drew many of us to this church, and it has been deeply formative to our life together. We have a love for scripture, and yet many of us struggle to read it for ourselves. Many of us struggle to study it for ourselves, to search it out for ourselves. We struggle to make it a normative part of our life together as brothers and sisters, in our conversations, in our small groups, our Sunday school discussions, our prayer times. We struggle to read it as families, relegating that task to the pastors at the Sunday morning worship service. And this weakness has been exposed in our dialogues and debates, our struggles and our quarrels. 
Paul's words to the Philippians are pertinent for us. We must count all as loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We're not perfect yet, and we don't have to be perfect to be loved. When we're not perfect and we're deeply loved, God will discipline us to arrest our attention, to nurture our faith so that our love would be deepened. And these are opportunities that God in his grace has given to us. But we must be actively pressing in and pressing on. And we must acknowledge that we have not yet taken hold of it. But we definitely have been taken hold of. And we must be straining toward what is ahead. All of us, Paul says, should have that view. All of us should have that view. And scripture is the primary way in which Christ is known. And when Christ is known, Christ is loved. And I would also just say, it is so much easier for us to fall in love with our Christianity than with Christ. I want you to hear that. It's so easy for us to fall in love with our Christianity rather than Christ. But if your love of Christianity is first, there is no Jesus. Because Jesus is either first or you don't get him at all. When you get Jesus or when Jesus gets you, you also get his body, the church. Okay, and that's the second word I want you to hear ringing in your ears. You can't have Jesus without also being a part of his body. And there are many times we wish we could have Jesus by ourselves in a cave somewhere, apart from all the other fellow rebels and criminals that gather with us bearing the banner of Jesus. This one has very personal, very tangible implications. It involves human relationships. It involves messy ones, exciting ones, deep ones, easy ones, difficult ones. And as a local assembly of the body, God has blessed us with some measure of diversity. We're a growing community. We have a somewhat unique place in Rockingham County where many people who have not found an easy fit in some other churches Here they have found a home, a place of belonging. Many have come wounded and hurting and have found here the Jesus of grace for healing and hope. What was once a very fragmented motley crew, God is shaking but blending together. He's growing us up and he's growing us together into a community of faith. Some of us are not sure we're excited about that. With you? With him? Really? It's not without its challenges. 
we are still struggling to be a community with a deep culture of mutual care where no one is excluded. There is still a level of unrest. It's easy for us. It's easy for us to be more problem-focused than to be rooted in a quiet faith and confidence in Jesus. But there is a growing sense of strength and cohesiveness at the center. There's a sincere attempt to welcome and receive brothers and sisters who may not fit well in some of our other conservative Mennonite churches. There is a desire here to allow Scripture to shape us, to be our guide. But we're also a bit nervous about where that might take us. How will we change? Will we change? Who decides? Is this actually a safe place for me and my family? And it is here that I would like to note, we have struggled as a congregation with some institutional arrogance. That arrogance has now borne fruit. Not just as individuals, but also as a community. We've all too often compared ourselves among ourselves, compared ourselves to other Mennonite churches, and of course they have been found wanting. We have felt we were better, we were more biblical, we were more Anabaptist, we were more evangelical, we were more, you add the word. God has ways of confronting that arrogance and humbling us. And I think it needed to happen. We also face a common American attitude toward church, and it's that of the consumer. We struggle, each of us, with wanting the church I go to to be the church I want it to be. Where I get what I want, but the investment I make is minimal or non-existent, But I want to remind you, if you want Jesus, you must embrace his body, all of it, all of it. There's only one, and it's not just us. It's resulted, this institutional arrogance has resulted in a shallow love that quickly gives way to living, I'm sorry, this consumerism has resulted in a shallow love that quickly gives way to living on the fringes rather than investing sacrificially and even painfully in the midst of struggle that God is bringing to help us grow and mature into the image of Christ. We want to be able to maintain our autonomy, to keep our options. This will not result in the cultivation of a love that stands out as a witness to a watching world of the redeeming, saving work that Jesus accomplished on the cross of Jesus, on that cross 2,000 years ago. This leads us to an area of significant discomfort that some of us have had. What about those other churches? Not just the other Mennonite churches but the Methodists, the Charismatics, the Nazarenes, the Presbyterians, the Anglicans, the Brethren, 
we have tended to be a very ethnocentric group of people and see ourselves as being at the very center of what God is doing in the world, as the most faithful of the faithful ones. It has nurtured a rather insular view of life. And while we have blessed other congregations generally, we have remained at a significant distance from them and often failed to do the hard work of seeking to lovingly understand and respect other parts of the body of Christ. Sometimes we feel threatened by them. But I want to remind you, if you love Jesus, you must learn to love his body. This is not just in other parts of the world, but also right here in Mount Clinton, in Rockingham County, in Harrisonburg. Jesus said that our love for our brothers and sisters is a primary way in which the message and ministry of Jesus is validated in the world. And when that love is present, observably present, people will know that Jesus is who Jesus said he was. Because when people set their eyes on Jesus, they begin to move together. And that's all of his body. It's not just those who are more conservative than we, or those who are more progressive than we, or those pretty much like us. It's the body. There was a pastor from another area church who visited here a number of months ago. A pastor that I have come to love deeply, a personal friend of mine, and represents a group of pastors that meet regularly. We gathered for coffee about a month after he had spent about eight weeks on a summer sabbatical. And there were five of us around the table drinking coffee, representing five different denominations. And this pastor had visited each of the other four churches during his sabbatical. And he said something like this. He said, brothers, you have no idea how encouraged I am after visiting each of your churches. So we live in a world that values diversity. He said, I want to tell you, the body of Christ in Harrisonburg and Rockingham County represented, even if we only represent it by the five churches that we as five pastors represent, is the single most diverse institution in all of Rockingham County and Harrisonburg. Age groups, social demographics, racial demographics, cultural demographics, those five churches represent the most diverse entity anywhere in Rockingham County. And how do we respond to that? We need to celebrate that. God is building his church. And I want you to note, that demographic is not represented here in this assembly. 
And unless we acknowledge that openly, we are setting ourselves up for an institutional pride that says somehow our little ethnic minority holds the corner on gospel truth. And I'm telling you, God will confront that harshly and vigorously. Because if you have Jesus as the first place, you also have his body, and those who love Jesus will love his body. We must learn how to not only read their books, but how to love them as individuals and as churches. We need to learn to love, to listen, and learn while faithfully, and I want you to hear me say this, while faithfully filling the place that is ours in the body of Christ. We are not Methodists. We are not Presbyterians. We are not Anglicans. I mean, you can go down the list and you can go inside the Mennonite world. We are not that group of Mennonite. We are not that group of Mennonite. God, I believe, and this is something I'd like for us to talk about tonight. God has called us to a specific time and place for a specific purpose. But if we become arrogant in that place, God can find others to fill the place. He's okay with that. It's us who are not so okay with that. And when we're not okay with that, that's symptomatic of our pride. I would also note, there's, a, there's an interesting corollary because inside this group, the way we interact with other denominations, some of us, when we encounter certain church groups, feel shame about who we are. Some of us feel arrogant about who we are. And I'll tell you, they're both the same thing. They're pride. One's just inverted. And we need to be saved from it. To learn to hum- humbly love our neighbor. We have differences. We have differences inside the congregation. We have differences with other denominations. And we need to know how to own those differences. And then how to talk about those differences. Again, coffee with a group of pastors last week. And we got to talking about the state of the American politics. And our place in the world. And we discussed how we're interacting with that. And I gave him a brief synopsis of my theological perspective And one pastor looked straight across the table at me and he said, that's one of your church's strengths. Our people don't understand that. And if we don't fill our place, we can't help and assist our brothers and sisters who have other views. So we must learn how to own our differences discuss and even debate those differences while also delighting in and celebrating our shared faith in Jesus.
our mutual love for Jesus. What is the way forward? We believe that a framework for our life together, rooted in some of the most basic areas of Christian faith, should be at the very center of our pathway forward. We are called, collectively and individually, each of us to be a priest, to be a king, to be a prophet, to engage in each of these offices in our worship, work, and witness. These are not offices that we select randomly from or pick one or two. Rather, they are callings for each of us, spheres in which we already are invested. And they're also part of our shared life together as a community of faith. They're exercised corporately in our work and our witness to the world. And the sphere of the priest is that of worship. The realm of the king is ruling or the area of work. And the role of the prophet is the area of witness. The church in its healthy phases has always been an outward facing organization. We gather not for ourselves on a Sunday morning. We gather to worship Christ. We gather to praise the name of God, to hear about him, to come to know him through the scriptures, the scriptures that are used in our prayers, in our singing, in our discussions, and our teaching. Because it's in knowing Jesus that our love of Jesus grows. And the more you know Jesus, the more deeply you will love Jesus. Whenever the church has turned inward, focused on itself, or turned on each other, the church has died. And it will die. And I want to suggest to you, it's a gift of God's grace that churches that turn in on each other die. Because they blaspheme the name of Christ. And so God has to just take them out. It's a mercy of God. It is God's way of assuring that his mission will go on through his church. It's not evolutionary. It's managed. It's divinely guided. It's not happenstance. God is present and acting. So very quickly, worship the role of the priest. We are here this morning to worship God. It's true that all of life is worship and that we are worshipers, but I speak here specifically of a God-centered, God-guided, God-glorifying corporate worship when we gather expressly for worship on a Sunday morning. It's what we do. We have a pattern. We have a form. But I want to note that we have spent very little time, and I think this is true not just of Calvary, but of the Anabaptists as a whole. We have spent very little time and energy carefully considering what Scripture has to say about our worship. If we're to rekindle our love for Jesus, the most likely place this will occur is in our corporate worship. It's the place where every week we should be encountering Jesus, refocusing our hearts and minds around the biblical story in order to effectively enter our world for work and witness. Our worship shapes us. And if it's not deep and rich, it creates an impoverished people. 
And I'm here to tell you, I think as a conservative Anabaptist movement, we are relatively impoverished, biblically, theologically, and spiritually. And there are many other denominations that are impoverished in other ways. But we too are. And we must find ways to begin to eat more richly, be nurtured more deeply. This has very practical implications. It shapes our location. It influences our space. Is there one assembly or more? But more significantly, it shapes how we worship. The pattern, the form, the content, and the mutual joyful participation in the worship of God. A joyful celebration of God and his gifts of grace to us. And as a worshiping community, we're going to walk right out of these doors for a six full days, and we're going to be engaged in the six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. And part of our effectiveness at work is determined by the quality of our worship together. And we need to look at our work, at the role of playing king in the world over the little spheres of dominion that God has given us. All of us go to work within a specific sphere of responsibility. Our work is part of the redeeming work of God, of reconciling all things to himself. Why do we work? What is the purpose of our work? And how can I find meaning in my daily routines that can honestly become tedious and trying? Does my work matter to God? How does my love for Jesus equip me to be effective in the marketplace? And I just want to note here that we are quickly moving from being home and farm-based communities to taking jobs and careers in the marketplace, even professional careers. And while this shift is filled with opportunity, it also presents many challenges for which we are often unprepared. And it is one of the reasons that many of our conservative churches tend to lose their professionals. Because what happens at church does not consistently interact with their workspace in the world. And whenever a church parts, divides, fragments, or loses over those kind of economic or socioeconomic categories, everyone loses. We need to find a way to nurture our faith in the marketplace. How can we grow to be faithful disciples at our trades and professions, in our homemaking and classroom management, as entrepreneurs or technicians? And then finally, our witness, the role and work of the prophet. We have all been given the mandate to announce the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. Our own tradition, as conservative Anabaptists, in more recent years has focused on its witness through lifestyle and behavior. We have celebrated God-designed gender distinction through traditional approaches to gender-distinctive attire, including head coverings for women. We have a lot of opportunity to develop a winsome witness of word. A winsome witness of word that undergirds and supports our witness of lifestyle. This witness needs to go to our neighbors geographically and our neighbors culturally. 
the person next door at work and in the public square, but also to the Mennonites in our neighborhood who may or may not have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are our cultural neighbors. We have some mission interests overseas. We have a few organized touch points in our community. What we need is a mobilized workforce where each of us going to our place of work back into our home territories is equipped to be a good news announcing disciple of Jesus Christ in close relational proximity where we actively love our neighbors who don't know Jesus in ways that makes the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive. Faithfulness to Jesus calls us to grow in this area as individuals and as a church. And I believe a growing love for Jesus will result in a growing love for our neighbor that compels us to a greater witness of Christ. And this needs to be guided by life and worship immersed in scripture because life-giving worship, the kingdom of God-shaped work and reconciling witness is always nurtured by a deep love for Jesus. And how do we come to know and love Jesus? By discovering him in scripture and through the spirit-filled grace of life together. Scripture saturating our worship. Scripture a common theme in our personal lives, our families, and our church. When I speak of areas of weakness, I'm not speaking in judgment. We're working, all of us, with what we've been given. And we must start where we are. It is our calling, however. It is our responsibility in our generation to continue reading scripture, continue following Christ, laying aside the weight and sin that so easily ensnares us, and then to run with patience and perseverance the race that is ours. Not theirs, ours. Our race. It is our duty and our privilege to make the hard choices today based on a faithful reading of scripture that will prepare the next generation with whatever level of personal sacrifice or personal comfort or giving up of personal preferences that will lay the best foundation for the next generation to go further and farther than we have gone. It is not our privilege to ask, what would I find most comfortable? How would I like this to be for me? We must lay those decisions down. We must sacrifice those preferences. God has given much, and where he's given much, much is required. But let's never forget to give priority to who we are becoming, internally, and as such known only to God, and in a lesser degree to ourselves and to others. But let's remember that who we are and the people we are becoming is the foundation for our speaking and doing. And when our doing outpaces our becoming, I want you to catch this. When our doing outpaces our becoming, the foundations of our lives, our families, our churches, and our communities begin to crack and crumble. And when we abandon faithful worship 
engage in self-centered work, and lose a quiet, confident, winsome witness, we always, always tend to resort to shallow, defensive, and dogmatic bickering. We resort to tactics of the flesh to undergird what we believe is the work of God. For Israel, in the passage here in closing, in Isaiah 30, for them, their lack of confidence was exposed by their desire to go to Egypt for help rather than wait for God's deliverance. For us, it's often trying some new method or returning to some old familiar method or seeking a better policy or reclaiming some specific set of behaviors that God seems to have used at some point in our past experience rather than waiting and resting in God. And what an oxymoron, but waiting and resting in God is sometimes the hardest work we do. It's just too difficult. It requires faith. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah from the Lord to Israel. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning or repentance and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. And you said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, this is the way. Walk, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your idols. Your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images, you will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. And he will give you rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures, and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people 
I want to catch this last phrase. And the heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. God waits to be gracious to you. And in his grace, he shows mercy. He will guide us as a teacher. And he will bind up the brokenness of his people that he has afflicted to arrest their attention. Can we wait and trust? Let's bow our heads. Our Father God, you're a God of grace and a God of glory. And we ask that on us, your people, you would pour out your power. Give us grace. Give us courage for the hour that we face. And Lord, would you help us to lay aside all those sins and weights that so easily beset us to run with patience the race that is ours. To keep Jesus first so that all other things, so many good things, could find their right and appropriate place. invite you to stand, please. And with the Apostle Paul, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Go in the name of Christ.